But I don't know if any of you guys have experienced this deal with, uh, I think Facebook has a version of it, Google Photos has a version of it, where they will on occasion send you a note or a reminder about uh, memories, picture memories. So you may just log on and all of a sudden find yourself staring at what was happening 10 years ago or five years ago. And it's happened to me recently. I hopped on to, uh, to Google and Google wanted to show me some pictures from many moons ago and it was of a, a, a vow renewal, a vow renewal that my parents did at their house there in the East Mountains of Albuquerque. And looking through these pictures, now married a long 13 glorious years. Some of you, 13 years is like nothing. But 13 years in now, I'm, I'm looking at these pictures going, wow, this is a really beautiful thing. Here they are surrounded by their family, their friends, in their home, this place they have created and built to be a joy to them and others. And of course, I noticed that, that I was helping with this vow renewal. I had my, you know, 48-pound Bible. I was the minister uh, doing the deal. And if you think this hair is crazy, you should see 10-year-ago hair, okay? So thanks to the Lord. But at the time, I, I didn't really get all that was going on. I mean, how can you when I was so newly married and here they were celebrating, I'm not exactly sure the date, maybe 30 or 35 years what I did realize then, and I do realize now even more fully, having looked through those pictures, is that the act of recommitting ourselves to the love that we have for those we love who love us, the act of making those promises is good and powerful and should be done, and should be done in public, and as it was that their vow renewal should be done in public with witnesses, with much food and wine and feasting to follow. Now, folks, that's the context of Nehemiah 10. That's what we're doing here. So I, every week I have to give you a reminder because it's easy to get lost in this weird Old Testament book called Nehemiah, which really is pointing us to Christ, as is the entire Old Testament. Those shadows point us to the substance who is Christ. In chapter 8, the people of God, having rebuilt the walls around the city of Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 7, in 8, they stand with Ezra. He's at a big pulpit. He's flanked by, you know, elders on either side to make sure the hooligans don't get out of line. And they read the word of God all day during the Feast of Booths. They hear the story of the law of Moses. And please do not forget that this is not them, you know, just listening to a bunch of rules and regulations and, you know, God's big uh, legal book, you know, for all the Old Testament lawyers so they can, you know, understand all the minutia of, of the law. No, it's the story of God's people. Genesis, all the way up through whatever prophets were current in this day, probably Malachi. Creation, fall, redemption, and God's promise to send his Messiah to send a savior who would once and for all save God's people from sin and from the oppression of their enemies. So in chapter 9, after hearing this law read, what can they do? What can they do but fall to their faces and confess before the Lord? They, they beat their chests like the publican in the temple in the parable that Jesus tells in Luke. Lord, would you be merciful to us, sinners? They're not beaten up and beaten down. Instead, they're convicted by the Holy Spirit at work through the Word of God. And in chapter 9, we hear that from morning all the way up through the day, 
They hear God's word and they confess to the Lord, we need you. We know you love us. We know you're alre- we're already your children, adopted into your family with new names. And now, Lord, we need to be honest with you about our brokenness so that we might restore relationship. That brings us to chapter 10. They've heard the word, they've confessed, and now they make promises. Now they make covenants. Now they take vows. Now we get the fullness of the covenant renewal ceremony, the vow renewal of the children, of the people of God, the bride of Christ before the Lord. And these vows are, as you just heard, specific. They are not ambiguous. They are not left up to the interpretation of God's people. And they are requiring God's people to act. They cannot just be words. These folks must not only be hearers, but doers of the word of God. And so the main point of chapter 10 that comes at the end of this glorious three-chapter ceremony and time and feasting with God's word and his people and renewing their vows is this, that for us, you and me, Christ Church Santa Fe, in Santa Fe, to love God, to love our neighbors, our devoted obedience, our devoted obedience is an essential feature of our relationship to God. Having been restored by his grace through confession, now our devoted obedience is an essential feature of that restored relationship being lived out in Santa Fe. Because I know there are times you want to call down God's judgment on people in Trader Joe's parking lot. And I am right there with you. Lord, take them now. Sodom over here, Gomorrah over there. But no, our devoted obedience is an essential feature of our right relationship to God and his promised blessings. So here's the question, right? Lord, we want our lives to change. We want to be more in love with you and you with us. We want to know your blessings. We want to walk in the joy of your blessings. I mean, don't you want that? I do. Life is going to throw a lot of crazy stuff at all of you people and me. Every week, doesn't it seem like there's just some new thing for us to get fired up about. And be careful, please, how much time you spend on the news or even on social media. I was on Facebook for 23 minutes last night and I was like, okay, now I'm ready to check myself into a clinic. Uh, It's just bad news everywhere, all the time. Don't you want to know the Lord and experience his blessings, what he's promised for you in his word? Devoted obedience is an essential feature of our relationship to God and receiving those promised blessings. So Nehemiah 10 is really asking us, the people of God, 2020 in Santa Fe, a question. The same question these folks were answering 500 years before Jesus in ancient Israel, in the city of Jerusalem. Will you say, I do, anew? That's it. Will you say, I do, anew? Do you want Psalm 34 in your life? Do you want to taste and see that God is good? If that's true, if we want those blessings, we must trust our lover, the lover of our souls, um, by the action of our hands. We're going to tease this out this morning in three ways. And the first is this, that God deals with his children in promises. This is how the God of the Bible deals with his children throughout the scriptures. God deals with us in promises. These promises are most frequently called covenants. And they unite 
the grand narrative of the Bible. The promises of God or the covenants of God unite the grand story of the Bible. Indeed, in the garden, God makes a covenant with Adam. Do anything you want, but don't eat of this tree. If you do this, if you don't that. And he fails. He breaks this covenant of works. He decides that he wants to take it upon himself to be the arbiter of truth. And God immediately, in this garden temple sanctuary, descends as the Spirit in full authority and makes a new promise to Adam and Eve. One will come who will finally and forever crush the head of the serpent. And from that point forward, Genesis 3, 15 and 16, God is working with his people under the promise of this great covenant of grace, that he will never leave them nor forsake them. He will be their God and they will be his people. And as we jump into this idea that God deals with us, his children, through promises, I want to have a quick pause because this is really amazing. When you compare this, and no, you know, no weird straw man arguments here, okay? So if you want to go out and grab coffee afterwards at 10 feet apart, I mean, you can still pay for the coffee even if you're still 10 feet away from me. And talk about all this stuff philosophically and hash it up, I'd love to do that. So this is briefer than it, than it should be, but go home and, and fact check me. The other options that exist for you out there, the other little g gods of the world, do not deal with their people in such promises. This really is an amazing thing. With other gods, it seems to be that the operative principle is maybe that of prizes. If you appease what I want you to do for me, you'll get a prize. Or maybe prostration. Bow down. You know, you don't get to lift up your heads. There's no word of assurance. God forgives you, forgive others, forgive yourself. None of that. Bow low. And the lower you bow, the more I might consider your bowing worthy. Or perhaps it's an exchange of power as we find so commonly in polytheistic religions, in particular the pantheon of Greece and Rome. Mostly in the history of man and currently in our own day, it's just about religious prowess. Can I do enough, be enough, be good enough, be religious enough to earn the favor of the gods? And here people find themselves penultimately having to work harder, feeding the statues, maybe literal physical statues or maybe my education, my money, my work, my identity, my family, my marriage, whatever it is. And then inevitably, because you are finite and you're worshiping nothing that's made but by human hands, the food begins to mold again and has to be replenished by the work of your hands again. And then again, you have to hope that it is enough, indeed, that in the offering, you are enough. And in the scriptures, in the Old Testament prophets in particular, this is referred to as slavery. It's the slavery of man's religiosity and trying to work his way to God. Compared to that, the Bible has a new picture for us. Not slavery, but matrimony. Not shackles and chains, but covenant promised love that is bound by oath. In the Bible, we are the bride of Christ. He is our bridegroom. 
This isn't just a New Testament picture, folks. Many of you are familiar with that great and difficult Old Testament prophet, Hosea. Maybe we'll do Hosea next. Hosea is amazing and heavy and crazy. And God says, Hosea, here's the deal. My people keep saying they love me and they don't. They keep stepping out on me. They keep proving themselves unfaithful in this relationship. So here's what we're going to do. You wanted to be a prophet? You got it, buddy. You are going to be a living word picture of my love for my people. And so you are going to go take for yourself a wife who is not faithful. And she is going to cheat on you and leave you and go after these other dudes. They're going to be better looking than you, have more money than you. And guess what? You're not going to pick up stones. You're not going to bring the 98-pound book of the law to, you know, beat her up. Instead, you are going to continue to relentlessly pursue her and call her back to yourself. You are not going to feel any love for her. Feel. But you are going to set your love upon her. By promise, so that my people Israel know that I am their God and this is how I have chosen to love them. In the picture of God marrying the unfaithful bride, but making her faithful over time by the washing of the water of the word, he shows us that he binds himself to us by a covenant. In the ancient Near East, a covenant was merely a contract. And not just in the nation of Israel, uh, Indeed, in the mid-20th century, a variety of scholars digging things up in the Middle East found these ancient Hittite, remember the people, the Hittites? They found these ancient Hittite scrolls. And what they found is that the contractual nature of those ancient Hittite scrolls was the same as what we find in the Old Testament. And indeed, in each case, there was the requirement to cut a covenant. So you'll hear about this, cutting a covenant. What does that mean? It means this, that they would take an animal, that that animal would be sacrificed. It would be essentially cut in half or quartered and laid on either side to form a path. Its blood would be spilled as not only the blood of atonement, but of the seal of the pact. Like the ring pushed onto the letter. Stipulations, that is, obligations to the promise would be read publicly. And then there would be blessings and curses. If you keep this promise, you will have X, Y, and Z. You shall live. Often this was between the great king, like Artaxerxes, and little regional vassal kings. So, hey, if you trust me and obey me, then you will have my protection. You will have all these things that Nehemiah received to rebuild the wall. But if you cross me, if you don't keep this promise, if you break this covenant... You will be cursed like this animal on the ground. You will be torn asunder. Oaths and vows were then taken to the making of this promise, as if to say, till death do us part. If I break this pact, I will become like this torn apart sacrifice. But if not, blessed assurance. If not, I will receive all the gifts and blessings of the one to whom I have made this promise with. This is how God deals with us in promises. And for God, these promises are unbreakable. These covenants are not based upon the condition of our perfections, but on the condition of his own perfect nature. Let me read 2 Timothy 2 for you. I just love this passage. Paul writes to the young Timothy in Ephesus. These words in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, look, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. (laughs) 
You work in a church, buddy, so there's going to be a lot of distractions. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Now that's back to the covenant in 2 Samuel 16, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But Timothy, the word of God is not bound. It's another way to say the promises, the covenant of God is not bound. Therefore, because of God's promises, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. All the blessings of the promise. This saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. But if we are faithless, oh, good news. He remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself. So those little verses in 2 Timothy, which are repeated again in the book of Hebrews, which are based on the entire precedent of the Old Testament, remind us that God cannot deny himself. He cannot break the promises he makes according to his oath because his nature as God is perfect. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. This is the covenant of grace unfolding throughout the history of God from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Moses to David to the exile and back again and now to us, the people of God in every tribe and tongue and nation around the world. So what shall we do? Well, like the people in Nehemiah 10, we respond with devoted, truly devoted obedience. So we make vows. Folks, that's what we're doing every week when we come here. Every week when you come to Christ Church Santa Fe, welcome to a vow renewal wedding ceremony. Here you are. Every week when we say the Apostles' Creed, we believe these things, Lord. We are recommitting to, to the core truths of the gospel. Look, as a church, we have distinctives. I was just talking to my homie, Reed Reedus, at First Baptist. Is that not the most pastor name you've ever heard? Reed Reedus. I love him. Carlos Montoya down at Blaze. Like Jennifer said, we're doing this partnership thing for mission camp. We were just talking about our churches, and we all have distinctives. You know, they're Southern Baptists. These guys are Acts 29. We're this, they're that. But here's the fact of the matter. On the core of the gospel, man, our hands are held tight together for the glory of Jesus Christ in this city and in our churches. Every week when we declare the Apostles' Creed, we say, this is the stuff, folks, that's in the closed hand. There's a lot of stuff in the open hand. And of course, I, I like the stuff that's in the open hand. That's why I'm here. I think there's some really good things about all that. But when it comes down to it, it's, it's those truths that we are recommitting ourselves to week in and week out. It's like the dance of marriage. I've been, I do a lot of kind of premarital counseling for folks of all ages and I like to use this as a metaphor. If you've ever been to or seen, perhaps on video, to, uh, you've been to Argentina maybe and you've seen this, or you've been somewhere and you've seen two incredible tango dancers. Anyone here like tango? Anyone? You want, you want to come up? and No, please don't do that. We don't do that. That's not one of our distinctives. If you've seen two really good tango dancers, well, let me ask you, who's leading the dance? Well, you know the answer to that question. It's the strong, humble, servant-oriented man that technically is the leader of the tango dance. 
Oh, but when you look at the tango, who is most glorified, most beautified, most flourishing in their, in their moves and the power and stealth of their moves? Well, it's, it's the woman. This dance is an analogy or a metaphor, I should say, for, for marriage. And it takes two. God makes promises with us. He wants to lead us. He has the strength to help us in the dance. And yet we must devote ourselves to obeying his word. Now, why is this devoted obedience so important to the Israelites? I think the first reason comes off the back of chapter 8 and 9. They understand the justice of God, that he is just, that he is holy, that he is true and good, that he cannot wince at sin. And so their response of devoted obedience is in a way for them to own that they are not God, that they have not been holy, that they do need his help. And by the taking on of these blessings and curses, the consequences for their actions, they acknowledge that those actions indeed do have consequences. That if you're in a relationship with somebody, what you do and what you say matters. If you enter into a, an intimate covenant relationship with someone else, you're no longer just an island. It's all about me. I do what I want when I want. When I first got married to Caitlin, I had a little book. It was called A Man, A Can, and A Plan. And that is how I ate food. Ranch-style beans and ramen every day. Go skate, burn it all off. When we got married, that book didn't just get put on the shelf. It magically disappeared. I don't know where it went. Things are going to be different now. One of our first dates, I served her up a salad and put salsa on it. Like Sadie's salsa. I was like, this is salad dressing, right, babe? No, babe, it's not. Okay, so when we enter into that intimate relationship, we acknowledge that it's no longer about us and that our actions do have consequences. Perhaps that's why in Nehemiah 10, the normal word for covenant is not used. In Hebrew, the normal word is berit. It's used all throughout the Old Testament. But here, they use a different Hebrew word that perhaps has a more extended range to its meaning. The word is amanah, amanah, not berit. Berit is the clear word for the contract. Berit is a legal word in the ancient Near East. Amanah has a more personal nature to it. Now, we know it's a covenant because the word cut is still used, and the other features of a covenant are present in this promise. But Amanah is more intimate. It really means faithful promise keeping. God's people are saying to the Lord, we've heard what you require. We know that you love us, and we will not step out on you. And into this promise, all God's people join I want us to, to notice the unity of what's happening here. It's not just that the leaders respond with devoted obedience. It's not just the priests or the Levites, because they're extra special and holy people, because they're religious, you know, professionals or whatever. It's not just the princes and the nobles, because they can think back to chapters five and six when they were being punks and they need to get be they need to be made right. The scripture tells us that, that everyone was there. The men, the women the sons, the daughters, even those who were so young that they were just learning to understand God's word. And I think this is important for us to hear because part of the reason we come to church brought out of the world and into this place is to be reshaped, 
not only as individuals, but as a community. The scriptures decry rampant individualism. They also have a place for individuals and individual responsibility. Don't mishear me. You're not gonna, you don't get to stand before God someday and say, well, everybody else over there. No. We will stand with our own stories, and hopefully we will stand in Christ. But the way that God often treats his bride and his people is as a community. So the three groups named, the priests, the Levites, and the chiefs, they represent the entire leadership of the people. And the names that are listed that we didn't read from verses 1 through 27 don't just represent individual families, but often entire houses or people groups. It would be like saying here in Santa Fe, you know, the Trujillos, the Armentas, the Sanchezes, right? If you say the Sanchezes in Santa Fe, you're not just talking about one family. You're talking about literally almost everybody. That's what it is for all these people to join in. And they join in in the text on five main issues. Now, we could easily have spent the entire sermon teasing out these five issues, but we won't. I'll be brief. But I want you to know what the five issues are. The first one is they recommit to the Lord to not intermarry with peoples in the land. And I cannot say strongly enough, just so there is no misunderstanding here, that this was not anything about interracial marriage. Okay? Because we have Ruth. And we have Rahab and replete other examples of those in the Old Testament who were of other ethnicities who came into the people of Israel who who were married off to fellow Jews. No, this intermarriage bit is about not being influenced by other people and their idols in the land. And some of you have seen this with with your own kids, maybe with your grandkids. This is why Paul says it is important in marriage for for both people to be equally yoked in their belief about Jesus. Because if they're not, it's, it's really easy for one to pull this way or the other to pull that way. And man, if Jesus is the Lord of the universe and you don't have that in common, that can really be a challenge. So intermarriage is the first issue. The second is Sabbath rest. All right? They live in the desert, folks. There's not a lot of water. You've got to work hard. Every tomato that springs up from your garden is hard fought here in Jerusalem. And that meant... Maybe we should work on the Sabbath. Because six days we can get a lot done, but man, if we work on that seventh day, we can get extra done. God says, no, that's a day of rest. I don't want you trading with foreign peoples. And as usual, by the letter of the law, they had found a loophole. You know? They had found a way to get away from their taxes, which was they wouldn't do the trading, but they would let their foreign servants do the trading for them on the Sabbath. God says, stop. You know that's not what this is about. Don't work your loopholes. Rest. The last three pertain to worship, particularly in the temple of God. Offerings, first fruits, and caring about God's house. These are the big five. Now, why are these five mentioned? That's the question that should be gnawing at you right now. Why? It's because all five of these issues were issues that the Israelites themselves admitted that they had struggled with. We've already seen this in Ezra that each and every one of these things had been transgressed. They were intermarrying and being drawn to foreign gods and idols. They were not resting on the Sabbath. They weren't taking care of God's house. So continuing in chapter 9, spirit of confession, these five issues are not just some arbitrary thing. Look, folks, they heard the law and they let the spirit convict them. And that's what I want to invite us into. Every Sunday, 
Every Sunday as we hear the good news of the gospel and we are reminded how deeply we are loved, in that love, in that fatherly love for us, where does the word need to convict us? Where does it need to convict me? Every week when we do the confession, it's funny, let's pray silently now and confess our sins. It's like the same stuff for me every week. Sometimes I'm thinking, this is going too long because it's the same things every week almost. But yet it's good. It's good for me to let God's word speak into my life and humble me. Because when that happens, my love for God grows and my love for neighbor grows. We live in a time where it is so easy to get so incredibly annoyed with your niece who lives in that other city over there that you don't talk to anymore who posted that crazy thing on Facebook. And all you want to do is just respond with the full furor of the truth. A time when it is so easy for us to be us and them. We are right. They are wrong. We are true. You are other. We are God's children in Jerusalem. You're the people in the land outside the camp. So they admit these five issues that they had struggled with, saying, God, you've convicted us as we stood for seven days and heard your word. We didn't just hear your word. We heard it speak to us in the areas where we have failed. And the other thing you need to know about these five, these big five issues, is that each of these was countercultural in their own day. Tribal intermarriage was as common as anything you can imagine. To, to say that you didn't think it was a good idea meant that you were the bigot. You're the weirdo. Can you think of any analogies in our own day? That if you might believe those things, even if you believe it so lovingly and so carefully and you, you really do love people, they're not projects, then you're not being a judgmental, I hate you, but you know what? Here's what God's word says. No matter how sweetly you believe it, the world is going to look at us and go, man, you're bad, <laughs> bad people, you know. How dare you, I de how dare you deny, you know, this thing that's so important to me, this thing that's a part of my identity, I say. And so in the midst of this, they commit to grow by grace in the midst of their gunk. I want you to see this. They don't need to get all perfect and right and totally clean, and now we'll start. Whew, I'm perfect now. Now I can get going. In the midst of their gunk, in the midst of their challenges, in the midst of their pre-existing unfaithfulness, having heard and confessed, they say, today's the day. Today's the day to start. And this is why it is essential, essential to respond with dev devoted obedience to really know God's love and his blessings. Because if we don't, it's actually pride. It's actually pride. It's actually our, our way of saying, you know what, Lord, I can't start today because I'm not good enough. Haven't quite been made right enough yet. Haven't gotten it all together. Call me back in a week and let's see if I'm doing a little bit better and then I'll be ready. No, it's as if the scriptures beckon to us. Today is the day. Today is the day to not have religion, but to have God. To not make church and building and programs and temples a mere talisman, but to really be known by the promise-making, promise-keeping bridegroom. That's why they end here with this promise of we will take care of the house of God because what we do with the house of God, the gathering of God's people, the worship of God, what we do with that is an indicator of our hearts. It's a thermometer to our lives. 
And I found this quote particularly convicting and encouraging this week. No wife, no wife believes a husband who says that he loves her, but never, ever, ever spends time with her. No wife believes a husband who says he loves her, but never spends time with her. We have no further reason to believe anyone who says that they love Christ the bridegroom, yet does everything in their power to forsake the church. And it's not just because I work here, guys. I've often thought, you know what? If I didn't work here, it would probably be tough for me to come sometimes. And we don't do the guilt thing. So we know that folks travel and people need to rest. And we're not tallying up if you're here or not. It's way bigger than that. Oh, that would be easy to manage. We could manage all that. No, it's about the heart. It's about the heart that says, Lord, this is your house. And we need to be drawn out of the world every week to worship you, to be remade and reshaped and restored and rebuilt like the walls of Jerusalem in the image of Christ who loves us. So here's the good news. The good news is they meant what they said, just like we do every week when we say the Apostles' Creed. They meant it, and God knew they meant it. The good news is they tried. And the good news is for two whole chapters... They improved. (laughs) Brutal. They meant it. They tried. They improved. Here's the bad news. Nehemiah 13. Brutal. On almost every single count of the big five, they go back to their old ways. Do you see yourself in this story? Because I sure see myself here. Again? You're like, really? In true New Mexican form? Really, bro? Really? Are you going to do that again? After all of this, Ezra and Nehemiah, rebuilding of the walls and the temple, recommitting yourselves to the Lord again? And yet here we are. Here we are, you and me as God's children, as God's already children in Romans chapter 7. Man, who will save us from this body of death? Who will save us from these cycles? Who will save us? They were the ones who said that if we break this promise, we call down death upon ourselves. And we do. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. No one can escape it. We will all die once. But because of the great love of God, because of Christ, We don't have to die twice. Although they call down covenant curses upon themselves, Christ himself, in perfect relational tandem with the Father and the Spirit, is called down, Philippians 2, to be humble, humiliated, and brought low. The King of Kings called down to be a covenant curse for us, to pay our price, to bear the weight of our sin, but so much more than that, to forgive us. To raise us up from the dead, the new first fruits. Remember, he's the first fruits of all creation. We are his brothers and sisters who will follow in kind. By oath, we, like the people of God, were consigned to the obligations of the covenant and we failed. But by oath, Christ himself has consigned himself to us that we might be brought back to God. And that is why Nehemiah's name itself means Yahweh, the covenant name of God, 
The I am that I am, the I set my love upon you and call you by name, Nehemiah means Yahweh comforts. Comfort, comfort my people. Although we continue to be like Hosea's wife, God continues to be like Hosea. So let us then renew our vows today. The bridegroom calls out to you by name. Come into my joy. Let me bless you. Be in my promise for your good and and for the good of this city. May we not forget that our devoted obedience is essential to our relationship with God and his promised blessings. But his promised blessings to us in Christ can never be denied. Jesus has done it all for you and for me forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Nehemiah 10. What a great, weird text for 2020. But Lord, we believe that your whole word from Genesis to Revelation is one unified story of your love for us. And so every single chapter in the Bible is for us to know Jesus Christ, your son, more deeply. And it doesn't get much deeper than this, Lord, that we would know that you are the God who deals with us in promises. We respond in devoted obedience, and yet so often our our responses are lackluster. Do you beat us up? Do you kick us out of your house? Do you cut us off from your family and your name? The opposite. You continue to draw us to yourself, to remind us that your great love as our bridegroom will never fade For it isn't based on what we do or don't, but on what you have already done. It is finished. And so we stand in that together. In Christ's name, amen.